Hi there, this is Ken Roundy at USH Med Student. Uh, I've got a, another great podcast. I'm quite excited about this one, as is usually the case. Uh, Layla, do you want to do some introductions to get us started? Um, well, um, my name is Layla. I'm SSRN here at the State Hospital. Um, I'm also a psychiatric nurse practitioner student at Gonzaga University. Good to have you with me again. And I think I think I'm going to do a better job of not wrecking your preparation on this podcast. How does that sound? <laughs> it's okay. I've I've also gotten more sleep this time around. So <laughs> good good for us. All right. So uh, tell me a little bit about how this topic developed, and then tell me why Lou Ferrigno is your hero. <laughs> well, um, this topic developed um, the area that we're focusing on. Um, um, in school right now, um, it's, it's just because the um, we seem to there's there's a high rate of delirium, and um, in the population that we're focusing on, but um, it's difficult to diagnose uh, for a number of reasons, and um, to be able to treat. Um, a patient, you need to be able to correctly identify um, the issue that they're having. So the original assignment is, uh, I think you were required to turn in a project mm -hmm. on the difference between delirium and dementia. Mm -hmm. Comparing the two. And we had talked about maybe doing another podcast. Mm -hmm. And I said, hey, let's do the podcast. And you said, ah, okay, <laughs> fine. Knowing full well that it would be a lot more work than the project yeah. you would end up doing. But that's okay, because... Um, I mean, I'm here to learn, and I want to learn what I need to know so that I can be um, a good provider. So. All right, so let's do a case scenario. I threw together a case scenario that I kind of liked. Um, this is, again, the, the topic of the podcast is delirium versus dementia in the hospital and beyond. So here's the case scenario. A 68-year-old male with a history of alcohol use leading to alcoholic hepatitis complicated by esophageal varices that have recently ruptured is currently in the ICU and you have been called to assess for depression. On arrival, you notice that the patient is quiet and says very little. This is consistent with the information that was provided by the physician that called you for the assessment. The physician noted that there is apathy on the patient's part, interacting little with staff when they see him, but that at times he is able to do somewhat better. A call to family members to obtain additional information is unhelpful. They note that the alcohol has interfered with the relationship and that they know little else about how he has been doing. A MOCA is completed that suggests cognitive impairments. You notice that the patient struggles to attend to the interview. So this is... Uh, a delirium diagnosis, mm -hmm. right? And I think there are a lot of threads in this that somebody would be able to tug at. I think this is probably an obvious diagnosis of delirium. Um, but uh, let's let's be a little bit more specific. What is delirium? Um, well, according to the DSM criteria, um, delirium there needs to be um, evidence of disturbed attention. So. The, they're not able to direct, focus, or sustain their attention, also accompanied by uh, reduced awareness of their environment. Uh, the second part of that criteria is that it develops over a short period of time. 
um, with a shift from baseline and it also fluctuates. Uh, the third um, part of the criteria is that there's an additional disturbance in cog cognition. Um, and then, of course, if um, the first and third one are not better explained by a previous excuse me, neurocognitive disorder and it does not occur in coma, and then the fifth part of that is that there's evidence of a medical condition, such as intoxication, um, medical condition, toxin, or multiple etologies. During this preparation, you got very excited about, um, there, there seemed to be a couple of different kinds of delirium, right? Mm -hmm. In the case example, we talked about something that is probably a hypoactive delirium mm -hmm. where, where it commonly looks like depression, right? People mm -hmm. say, hey, this person looks profoundly depressed. Um, come take a look at this. But you got excited about a different kind of delirium. I think you started doing a, a dive down the rabbit hole. Okay. Does that sound familiar? It, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the different kinds of delirium that you might see. So depending on, well, just to bring it back to the case scenario that you started out with, um, just hearing alcohol, um, that, um, that one can be, that can be one cause of delirium, especially if they are withdrawing from alcohol. Another one, um, if, um, if it's alcohol and the patient is taking um, medication along with it, prescribed or not, um, that can cause issues as well. Um, sometimes the alcohol can produce like a synergistic effect and can cause the medication to be more potent than it is. Um, in addition, if, if we're working with a, an older client, um, just with the normal aging process, there, um, certain things start to slow down. Mm -hmm. So if they're not able to eliminate um, whatever they've taken in, um, it'll stay in the body longer. And so, so toxic buildup. Yep. So, so those are a couple of things that are happening here. You might also see, perhaps if I had included something like asterixis in this, mm -hmm. you might see uh, symptoms of what might be a, a hepatic encephalopathy. Mm -hmm. I, I want you to do a little bit more commenting on hyperactive delirium versus hypoactive delirium. It seems like you read a couple articles on that. I didn't make it to those articles and wondered if you had anything you wanted to add to that um, discussion. Just that the, the, the hyperactive, um, it's, so you'll see the psychomotor agitation and you could there may even be some signs of uh, psychotic um, symptoms associated with that one. The um, hypoactive, like you said, it's the it's very similar. They have uh, their symptoms are very similar with depression. So they'll have the apathy. Um, the, they'll be lethargic. Um, but there's also a third form, and that's the mix. Well, you'll be able, you'll see symptoms from both, both um, hyperactive and the hypoactive uh, criteria. In a way, in a we, in a we, in a we, we we looked this up so that we were pronouncing Dr. Inouye's name correctly. I think Dr. Inouye has probably done as much research on delirium as any other author we found. Yes. Um, she calls this acute brain failure. Mm -hmm and says that delirium 
is a marker of a vulnerable brain with diminished reserve capacity. Um, and uh, I think that's an interesting way of thinking about this. And as we go a little further into literature, I think you'll, uh, we'll be talking about some of those things, right? Um, so a couple of concepts that are frequently tested. I just want to just ping through these very quickly. So in addition, uh, in shelf prep work, uh, test prep work, in addition to being able to recognizing a couple of key concepts, first mm -hmm. of all, attention plus one other cognition. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the cognitive aspects of those, attention plus one cognition, mm -hmm. and then the time aspect of delirium, which is relatively rapid onset and fluctuating course, right? It, it ebbs and flows over time. Yeah. So, so if you can remember those two concepts, that's the easy part of delirium. The harder mm -hmm. part, I think, for the shelf exam is being able to identify some of the causes of delirium and the associated symptoms. So you might not be asked to identify delirium. What you might need to know is that a delirium is happening and that there might be a hepatic encephalopathy and look for things like asterixis or bruising. You n might find an encephalopathy, rather a uh, delirium, uh, associated with HIV, and you might need to recognize uh, IV drug use, weight loss, things along those lines, hyperthyroidism, hypoglycemia, pheochromocytoma symptoms. All of those are fair game, so what you'd need to know is the, the, the change in cognition mm -hmm. to attention and awareness of the environment plus one other cognitive issue and then the nature of the change, right? You need to be able to recognize those and then the symptoms associated with some sort of medical condition. Mm -hmm. And quite often they'll be multifactorial. So just, mm -hmm. that's, that's the very high yield shelf part up to this point. But now I, I think we wanna talk a little bit more about, I think even though this is a delirium versus dementia, mm -hmm. we ended up making this a lot more about delirium. So dementia clearly doesn't have that rapid onset. Uh, unless perhaps you have uh, a neurocognitive disorder due to uh, strokes, right? But then you'd have that very clear, th that those vascular events, you'd have those clear findings on MRI. Um, those would be somewhat different, I think, uh, a dementia due to that than this. But otherwise, your dementias are slow onset, right? Mm -hmm. They don't fluctuate, they're steady, mm -hmm. um, and it's not simply attentional changes plus one other cognitive change, right. right? You can have different kinds of presentations depending on the type of dementia. So I, I think those are the key distinctions. We might talk about those a little bit more, but I want I, I think we ended up a little bit more on the delirium side mm -hmm. on this. Does that sound right to you? No, that sounds right. So, so tell me why delirium is a problem, because you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, you said something along the lines of, it's important to know the difference. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh yeah, we're gonna be talking about that. So let's talk about that now. Okay, so well, with delirium, um, do you want me to? You do whatever you want. This okay. is your podcast. Well, delirium is associated um, with adverse effects if it's not caught in time. Um, so you can start with how common it is too, because I think that's what you were asking a second ago. Because there's, I think we have some data here on mm -hmm. how common it is. And then I think there's a few things in here that talk about why it's problematic, but it might be more of a common thing. So, um, it's, it, delirium is pretty common in hospitals, um, but it's, again, it's poorly recognized. Um, and we'll, we'll discuss that later, just um, some of the issues of how, why it's not recognized as easily. But it seems to occur um, so 
one of Inu, um, Inui. 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 <laughs> um, By the way, I messed you up on that before, right? Because yeah. I said in a way, and that stuck. Yeah. And then we were like, you were like, well, are you sure it's pronounced that way? I was like, I have no idea. Let's Google it, right? So, um, Inui, um, in one of um, her studies, um, it was found between 18 to 35% of patients um, admitted to old age medicine wards. Um, that the that they were found to have uh, delirium, but the rates were more close. Were, were um, excuse me, with the, the delirium, the rates were closer to 29 to 64 um, percent. But the community rates are it's one to two percent, and that's usually what triggers a visit to the ER. So it just shows that what's the patients that are already in hospital settings. What is um, Recognized compared to the community rate again, one to two percent. I'm sure that the rates are probably higher. Probably higher, yeah. Um, I thought that was a really interesting article because I, I probably so I hadn't, I don't even know how to say this. <laughs> I've tried like four times now and I keep stu stumbling, but I, I had some misconceptions about delirium when. Um, we started the podcast. Mm -hmm. And and this article helped me understand a little bit about this natural progression, right? So mm -hmm. quite often, delirium can lead to an ER visit. And quite often, delirium is incident in a hospital stay. In other words, it emerges during the treatment right. or during the hospital stay. And I thought this helped me understand that, this mm -hmm. in, in a wee article helped explain that chain of movement. It also helped me understand one other thing, and that was that different units in, an, in a hospital, a regional hospital, mm -hmm. would have different rates of delirium and different kinds of problems that they're addressing that might be, lead to delirium. So we saw, I think, prevalence data on uh, hip fracture surgeries. Mm -hmm. It was like 100% in one of the articles I've read yeah. in the past. It was crazy. And then you also see other post-surgical delirium rates. I think there was an article we looked at for uh, urinary surgeries, mm -hmm. thoracic surgeries. Right. And, and these rates vary dramatically. Post-surgically, they vary dramatically in general uh, uh, wards, whether it's associated with maybe a urinary tract infection. Mm -hmm. We're gonna talk about that in a little bit, yeah. I think or perhaps a pulmonary infection, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that um, in terms of practicing medicine, the data that we had, we took a couple of articles and looked at those, mm -hmm. kind of w what did people see when they took all comers into an, emergen or into a an emergency department? Um, wh what did they see? What were the things that brought people in? So, mm -hmm. so these numbers will vary a lot, right? I think it yeah. makes it very hard to write a textbook. Yes. And we're gonna talk about that later yes. too, I think. Yes. So, so, um, well, to get back to why it's such a problem is mm -hmm. that if it goes, if it's not recognized, identified, and addressed early on, um, the rates of death associated with de delirium um, are increased incredibly. Um, it's there was a study done uh, by how do, you, how do you say that name? I believe it's Siddiq. Siddiqui, Siddiq. Um, in two thousand six, that at that time um, found suggested that every 48 hours of delirium increases the risk of death by 11 percent. Yeah, I saw that too, um, and that surprised me a little bit. Uh, you had an article that you looked at of Bellingham, England. Did you want to mm -hmm. comment on that article too? So um, this particular study, uh, it, well, it, it's, 
analyzed literature on delirium and summarized the information. And in that article, um, it stated that it, uh, delirium was quite common in hospitals, but again, it poorly recognized, um, which could, um, because of this, um, uh, the problem lies in the higher mortality rates. Um, and it, in, in this particular article, again, it said uh, that benzos and antipsychotics appeared to be associated with three times the mortality rates. Um, because this is, um, I'm not sure, it wasn't clear that if it was, if they were looking at these particular classifications of meds in the treatment of delirium, or if it was that the patients were on those, were on those medications. Up. So that, that was a little bit unclear for me with, um, from that particular article. I, I want to make one comment here, and I think we're going to come back again to this same idea later, and that is that as we looked through the treatments for incident delirium, in other words, incident delirium, in other words, not prevention, mm -hmm. but after delirium had emerged, the data is a lot more uh, skeptical on anything working. Right. And, and I do think that different deliriums, different um, deliriums of different origination mm -hmm. may have relative benefit or harm from the treatments that they're provided for. And we're going to see some examples of that later. Uh, the last time I did a lit review on treatment of alcohol withdrawal dementia, there was data that perhaps benzodiazepines should be used in that specific setting, but not anywhere else. So I'd be interested if I, I you know, looking at that article to have some mm -hmm. insight into what the setting was, who it was that was treated with those, whether that carve out of alcohol mm -hmm. Delirium is still a legitimate carve-out in my mind or whether I would need to ch change an update. Now the next set of information we looked at was how does delirium happen. In the back of my mind, I wanted to have an answer like, uh, okay, delirium happens when you uh, change the uh, body enough that the brain starts signaling an inflammation pathway and that inflammation does X, Y, and Z and suddenly yeah. anticholinergic uh, effects are happening in the brain and you can't think anymore. But it's not that easy. <laughs> no. So, if well, it was that easy, we probably wouldn't be doing this podcast on it. No, I don't think we would. Uh, your answer is, is wonderful. I think the best way to think about delirium then. And, and I, I think I put most of this together, so what I want you to do in this section is mm -hmm. kind of add color commentary and ask okay. me questions about it, so we're switching roles a little bit. Okay. How, how does delirium happen? And I thought that Inouye's article from 2014 was a good description of what the kind of the current thinking is, mm -hmm. and that is that it's based on vulnerability and insult. So so there's at least two factors, right? So what what causes vulnerability? What are the predisposing factors? Um, it seems that dementia or functional impairment is a predisposing factor. Alcohol misuse, older age, and, and again, alcohol of all of these was the biggest predisposing mm -hmm. factor, alcohol use. Um, th those were the biggest, but included in that list are dementia, cognitive impairment, history of delirium, functional impairment, visual impairment, hearing impairment, um, comorbidity or severity of illness, depression, history of TIAs and CVAs, alcohol misuse, uh, and age greater than 75. Again, I point, pulled a couple of those out at the beginning of this to talk about the vulnerabilities. And then what are the insults 
added on top of those vulnerabilities that seem to lead to uh, to a delirium. Well, uh, increased serum urea, neurosurgery, and then uh, lastly and highest are AAs, and I don't I don't remember what that was, but I think it was aortic aneurysms. I think, that, I think so too. <laughs> and that's a huge risk. They also note that uh, drugs, and I think in this case they meant mostly medications, mm -hmm. were uh, a risk factor. Now a lot of different people looked at different medications different ways, so mm -hmm. several medications might be a risk factor, psychoactive medications might be a risk factor, sedative medications, mm -hmm. in my mind, the way I read the data, seem to be the most clearly problematic mm -hmm. of the risk factors. Um, Physical restraints. We talked about restraints in a previous podcast, and that article that we reviewed in the past was brought up, and it's one of the factors that is more likely to lead to a delirium. A uh, use of a bladder catheter is likely to lead to a delirium. There was a, a review by Maine et al. in uh, 2019. It reviewed 1,702 articles on UTI and delirium. They felt that the data was really poor overall. Now, I, I I can't tell you how many times I've said to medical students, um, if you have somebody that has a delirium and has a male and is over 65, what's the first thing you do? Mm -hmm. And in my mind, the answer has always been check a UTI, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard the same thing before. Yeah. About a million times, yeah. probably from me among those, right? <laughs> this main article was very interesting because they say there's not that, that clear of a link between bacteriuria and an alteration in mental status that would be consistent with a delirium. And one of the reasons they say that in these 1,702 articles is because the definitions of bacteriuria are poorly clarified mm -hmm. and the way that uh, altered mental status was defined was poorly clarified. So, so interestingly enough, even though we are aware that a bladder catheter seems to lead to a delirium, it's not as clear that a UTI causes that even though I think the issue in this case still might be lack of well-collected data and publication of that data, rather than you know, this, the, the link doesn't exist. Although sometimes when you start looking at those things, you find things that are a lot different. We, we did see the Saniello, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, uh, I apologize. Um, Saniello. Yeah, so, so they talked about general surgery coming out of general surgery, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, general genitourinary surgery mm -hmm. and they found a post-op delirium ranging from 5 to 29 percent. So there is some some link between uh, urinary surgery and uh, or the the bladder I guess mm -hmm. and uh, delirium. Physiological factors that increased risk uh, like we're, we're again talking about we talked about the vulnerability we're now talking about the uh, the um, Insults, uh, physiological insults that lead to increased serum urea, increased BUN and creatinine ratio, abnormal serum albumin, abnormal sodium, glucose and potassium, metabolic acidosis. And again, in some ways, I have a hard time knowing why some of those weren't uh, vulnerabilities rather than acute changes, because it doesn't seem like it's an illness. It seems like it's more like a marker right. rather than a condition. Infection, uh, by the way, I think that uh, the data that we looked at among the most common infections really turns out to be pulmonary infections. Mm -hmm. uh, any iatrogenic event, surgery, uh, aortic aneurysm, non-cardiac, cardiac, thoracic surgery, neurosurgery, trauma admission, urgent admission, mm -hmm. 
and coma, although technically speaking, I think uh, the DSM would exclude a coma from the diagnosis of a delirium. Um, so I, I thought about this after I, after I kind of went through these lists. I, I think I started looking about at at this a couple of different ways. So we talked about the Inui article, maybe it wasn't the Inui article, um, we talked about how the prevalence of delirium in the community was like what one to two percent mm -hmm. and that if somebody actually developed a delirium we hauled them to the hospital pretty right. quickly, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, another way of thinking about what causes delirium is what illnesses cause somebody to be brought to the hospital and I think I don't know if you went through this data or if you want me to go through this data well we why don't we go through it together okay um, so the George data so George data um, from 1997 looked at a series of elderly patients admitted um, and they they assessed them using the DSM criteria and followed up um, using a match case control. They found that infection accounted for 34% of the cases, stroke and drugs 11% respectively. Um, myocardial um, Myocardial infarction. Infarction, fractures, and carcinoma accounted for 5% each, and there was 13 other items accounting for the remaining 29%. Uh, so they noted that 25% of the people uh, with delirium had uh, multiple potential causes. Um, and that they found an odds ratio of more than two for death. Um, it was found that the nursing home placement and rehospitalization uh, occurred within one year, and mostly this happened within the first six months. Um, when I looked at this article, I thought it was pretty reasonably, or reasonably well done. They had uh, matched case controls, I think, rather than trying to, I don't know, the, I, I can't remember. Um, Matching was intended for the type of injury and age, mm. but it was difficult to match injury type, so they felt like maybe their delirium numbers were inflated. Mm -hmm. And and again, that, that makes sense. I think in a lot of ways this might have been just a clean case series when we yeah. had somebody brought in. Um, here's what it looked like. And, and we, we get a lot of data from case series that I think are helpful. Um, this same kind of article was, uh, or the same kind of data was duplicated with Magni. Um, and I don't remember when this study was done. Um, and again, this was uh, similar to the George study with the caveat that it was older patients and they felt like nursing home admissions were the equivalent of a community dwelling adult. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I see that quite the same as they did. No. Um, when you take out those 20 nursing home patients, uh, I don't think it changes the data as much, but I would have liked to have seen this not nursing home patients. Um, and, and again, I, I thought this article was kind of difficult to follow through. I'll, I'll just say that their data was consistent with the George data, which is that pulmonary infections seem to be a big deal. Mm -hmm. Neurologic infections seem to be a big deal. Um, they include UTIs, but they also looked at uh, medications, I think, more than the George data. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at like a list of things that cause a delirium, I think one of the reasons we see drugs showing up in that list might be this main Magni, Mang, Mangi article yeah. um, and, and along those lines. Um, 
again, my takeaway from this was that pulmonary infections, like if I have somebody that shows up with an acute delirium, mm -hmm. I'm probably going to check a UTI and a chest x-ray now, mm -hmm. especially if I can't figure out why there's a change in mental status. So um, what, what causes delirium? <laughs> I think you told me it was more complicated than that a few minutes ago. Yeah. A couple of theories out there. Do you want to go through those? Well, um, so do you want me to, with the pathophysiology? Yeah, or? yeah. What, okay. what, what, what's the pathophys? Rather, I, I've used that language before, what causes it, right? Mm -hmm. and, and to me, that's, there's two ways of answering that. One is the medical condition, that mm -hmm. the, the event that happens on top of the vulnerabilities, right? right? But really what is the nuts and bolts of how it happens is the question I meant to ask, yeah. So there's several factors that lead to what's considered widespread neuronal network disruption, which leads to cog cognitive disruption. Um, so there's key factors in the changes in the, the, the cerebral blood flow ultimately. Um, so one is the neurotransmitters. There's a cholinergic deficiency and dopamine excess inflammation of the CNS, so endothelial activation, impaired blood flow, neuronal um, apoptosis, microglial overactivation, um, inflammation peripheral, which may lead to changes in the vagal afferents, changes in the circulating cyto cytokines. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. I hear cytokines, but it probably depends on okay. where you live. Okay. Um, uh, disruption of the blood blood-brain barrier, then glial activation. Uh, metabolic derangements, hypercortisolism, um, electrolyte disturbances, hypoxia, impaired glucose oxidation. Um, so again, it goes back to what you were saying before with like with the shelf exams, like the, the hyper, or excuse me, hypoglycemia, the... Um, the metabolic stuff, the, the ABGs. Yeah, I think, I think it's interesting that um, the best description of the pathophysiology is cognitive disruption from mm -hmm. widespread neuronal network yeah. disru disruption. And one of the things we didn't uh, run across very much, like we, we talk about, um, some, we'll talk about more in a few minutes, some of the like bedside tests you can do to mm -hmm. assess for a delirium. But, but what we didn't really get into are things like the physical markers that you might find with a delirium, uh, like an EEG that you might be able to check. So, so again, I think it's very interesting because when I was going through residency, this would have been about 20 years ago, one of the things that was very exciting to me is that Inui had found, or, or Inui was publishing, that delirium uh, changes in uh, acetylcholine mm -hmm. seemed to be a factor in delirium. And the idea was if you could give these uh, fairly new medications at the time for delirium, which were the anticholinesterase inhibitors, perhaps you could reverse delirium. Mm -hmm. Didn't work, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think we're going to find that story quite common. The, the, these neurotransmitter pathways that we tried to tackle didn't seem to work. Maybe there's more evidence for uh, inflammation being a key marker and maybe it's targeting the, the right inflammation but I, mm -hmm. I think that we have so few or so many different theories speaks to the idea of either these are all very different conditions mm -hmm. with a fi final common pathway and we need to figure out how to treat each individual 
delirium differently. Mm-hmm. Or maybe at some point we'll find a common final pathway that we address. And, and we'll get into some of the nuts and bolts of that as we go. Now, now the things that we talked about, what caused people to come to the hospital who had delirium, mm-hmm. that's a little bit different than what we see in a textbook. So when you go into like your nursing text, if I go into my medical texts, mm-hmm. we see somewhat different lists. Correct. Um, and I think that that also adds to um, the difficulty with diagnosing to identifying delirium is that it is different. It doesn't match up. And if this is what's being taught from the textbooks for um, skilled medical providers as they're going into um, uh, going into the areas of health, it makes you like, well, I, I don't even know what I'm looking for. I, don't <laughs> I, I do think probably most of the textbook stuff. So you had a textbook list, mm-hmm. causes of delirium. I, I think probably there are case reports or data out there on all mm-hmm. of these kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, again, I would say that uh, probably the common deliriums are the infections. Yes. And then they probably go down from there. Um, but what, do you want to go through this list that you put together? Because so, I don't think it's a bad list. I think it's just a list that we, we have a hard time with these lists kind of ranking where they sit in terms of causality. Okay. So just to summarize, um, so certain medications or drug toxicity, uh, pain medications, sleep medications, asthma uh, medications, mood disorder medications, um, that treat anxiety, depression, allergy medications, steroids, uh, Parkinson's disease drugs, and drugs that treat spasms or convulsions. Uh, And then alcohol, drug intoxication and or withdrawal, acute medical illness or conditions such as stroke, MI, CVA, injury from falls, etc. Metabolic imbalances, uh, low sodium, low calcium, Fever, acute infections such as UTI, pneumonia, pneumonia, flu, severe or chronic, severe chronic or terminal illnesses, exposure to toxins, uh, carbon monoxide, cyanide were listed, malnutrition or dehydration, sleep deprivation, disruption, severe emotional stress, pain, surgery, and other procedures that include anesthesia. So, if this is what the textbook is saying could cause delirium, again. There's, there's so many. That's that's a. <laughs> it's I mean, a big list. That's a big list, and that's just summarizing. So in the past, I there were a couple of mnemonics um, that helped students kind of conceptualize the idea of delirium. One of them, I believe, was WIMP, and it had a bunch of extra H's and a bunch of extra I's. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another mnemonic that I think has gone away because it's um, medicine doesn't always have the best mnemonics but it, yeah. it listed about uh, nine causes of delirium and and I think that my takeaway from this list and the and the mnemonics is rather than memorize a list of, of things that may cause delirium memorize the definition of delirium mm-hmm. which is and I'm going to repeat it again change in attention plus one other cognitive event or cognitive problem and the temporal nature of it, which is the rapid onset and the fluctuation in course, right? Mm-hmm. Memorize that and then be able to identify. And then work your way back as to um, history, like what 
what symptom goes with what condition, right? right? So if you have uh, somebody with a story of, I was recently prescribed something for sleep, then you might uh, trail that back to uh, temazepam or Ambien was given and it led to confusion in a geriatric patient, right? You think about the vulnerability of the cognitive state and then you think about the, the change, right? Maybe you have somebody that was given steroid medications uh, for lupus. Well, it might be lupus causing the delirium, it might be the steroid medication, but at least you're tying what you have already figured out is there's a delirium and now the issue is figuring out what symptoms go with what cause of delirium and, and usually I think there'll be enough clues in the in the uh, text to kind of help you through that if you're working on questions. Alright, so I want to tackle a little bit more specifically how do delirium and dementia differ. So if you are now presenting to your professor and you're saying, okay, I, I am I learned what you wanted me to learn with this assignment. How would you tell that professor that you are able to know the difference between the two? So delirium, um, again, it's there is the the onset where it's acute. It happens relatively quickly, and there's fluctuation uh, compared to dementia. Dementia is um, more gradual consistent there doesn't seem there's not the the changes um, within a within a 24-hour period um, another is that although there's cognitive changes with dementia um, the delirium um, there's certain it's the the uh, focus the attention whereas Dementia, there's different parts of that that um, they can tend to stay more consistent. Um, what about reversibility? So, so I know that, so you focused in on the diagnosis of delirium. Mm -hmm. I think I really like that because I think the dementia diagnosis is not at all like the delirium no. diagnosis. Mm -hmm. and, and I do think, um, and I'd be interested in your, th in your thoughts on this. I do think that really having a longitudinal history helps mm -hmm. you understand the onset, right? You have to yeah. go back and say, tell me about the past. And I think it's very likely you would find a dementia diagnosis underneath mm -hmm. the delirium, right? But that onset is critical. But tell me what your thoughts are about reversibility. Does that help in the diagnosis at all? Um, I don't know if it helps in the diagnosis, but it helps with um, going forward with managing or treating. So delirium, um, generally if you can trace it back and identify what is causing the delirium to occur and you address that, then there, there is a chance that things can be reversed. Whereas dementia, um, your dementia is not able to be reversed. You can slow its progression um, with, you know, just different um, different forms of treatment, but you cannot reverse it. Yeah. Pseudo-dementia is reversible, not mm -hmm. dementia. Good. Um, I, I want to focus in on something you said because you answered this differently than I would have and I really liked your answer. Okay. Um, so you said that the delirium allows you to go back and treat the primary problem. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're saying is and that can stop the fluctuating delirium if you can address that. The, the, the delirium's tend to either resolve or 
death happens. Does that sound about yeah. right based on what you read? And, and I think you hinted at this, but maybe not. I think you left the door open for the idea that potentially a delirium can lead to a dementia. Yes. I think that's what you were, yeah, tell me a little bit more about that. So um, the longer that, um, from the information um, I've read, the longer that uh, delirium is left untreated, yes, the adverse reactions such as, I mean, the worst cases, death. But the way that the, um, the effects that the delirium has on the brain can um, either catalyze if there is an underlying neurocognitive disorder. Mm -hmm. um, it can uh, bring it out sooner or it can create a new one create a new one i thought that was kind of scary now i, th I think we were hoping to get into that information more i think you read a couple mm -hmm. of articles about yeah. it this topic was too big for us to get that further but yeah. i do i do think at some point in the future i would be interested in a smaller podcast that looks at outcomes dementia outcomes associated with the delirium, delirium untreated or or prolonged or, you know, if there's a difference between yeah. the two. I think it's such a difficult topic to tease mm -hmm. out. I really did like one of the things that Meager said. So so your your professor might say, well, I, I want a different answer, right? Mm -hmm. But I really like the data that Meager had. Meager wrote this really great article, and he was one of the other, I think, um, good publishers, the people mm -hmm. that when we were reading those articles we felt yeah. very impressed by, by uh, him and his group. He said, if I understood the article correctly, hey, if you use the DSM criteria you can always find a delirium. Yeah. And if you're using the DSM criteria for delirium, you won't misdiagnose dementia. Right. However, the delirium criteria won't help you distinguish between a delirium and a delirium with dementia. Mm -hmm. So your delirium criteria will always pick up delirium, but it won't necessarily tell you if there's an underlying dementia. Right. You'll need the history for that. Does that sound like your takeaway from no, that? That was mine as well. Yeah, so I, I really liked that. Um, so I, I think rather than overkill this further, because I think, I, think, I think if you're diagnosing delirium using the DSM criteria, you're on pretty solid ground. Yeah. There are a number of tests out there. They're yes. not, they don't seem to be any better than, than just using the DSM criteria, no. but there are a lot of tests. Do you want to go through those just a so, little bit? Um, Actually, you know what, I'm ahead of myself. I want to do one other thing first. Okay. Yeah, you, you, you gave me the look of, hey, are you just skipping through this? And no, I'm like, no. no, I didn't mean to. So. Um, you put together a list of the differences between dementia and delirium out of a textbook. Yes, several, I, I went through several um, textbooks that are required for my classes. And even with that, like I said before, um, there's some inconsistencies with even other textbooks. Between and, textbooks, there's... Yes, okay. and uh, even with uh, peer-reviewed articles. So... <laughs> I, I remember looking. Yeah, I wish. I wish that we, sometimes I think we should make this a video, yeah. <laughs> so that people could see that look on your face. That oh. that like, man, I don't know what to, you know. The, how, what do you do with this, yeah. right? Because you, I, I remember looking at this list, which was a great list. I was like, wow, this is, this is Layla doing hours of work again, <laughs> and and then I got down to, um, in a delirium. So you had, uh, the onset. 
Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, you had onset, cause, or contributing factors, cognition, right? You had this list of things, and then you had delirium, dementia, and delirium and dementia, I think we added later, even yeah. though we didn't really build that out because I think we got frustrated with this list. Yeah. And, and one of the items that you had listed was emotional state, mood, and affect, where mm-hmm. uh, in a delirium, you can have rapid mood swings, maybe fearful, anxious, suspicious, aggressive, and then you had in uh, dementia, flat affect. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't know if this is accurate. Yeah. Because then we started looking at agitated delirium versus hypoactive delirium, uh-huh. and it didn't really fit very yeah. well. And then if you think about different types of dementia, you might have like maybe a frontotemporal dementia where somebody might be very agitated and aggressive, right? And yeah. so we felt like maybe... This was not, this was not very uh, valid. Yeah, the speech and language was another one I noticed. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I think, in the list you put together, it said maybe despri- described as rapid, inappropriate, incoherent, rambling. But that might be an agitated delirium rather than yeah. a hypoactive delirium. And then that also, depending on which type of dementia or neurocognitive disorder, some, depending on which part of the brain it's affected, it can affect their speech. Yeah. And so th- that one, I agreed with you. I, I, I just... Again, it's like, okay, well, one of my, when you get conflicting information, it's, I I can see how this can also add to some of the difficulties. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, One of the things I really liked about going through this exercise with you was it helped me see this a little bit differently. So Mm -hmm. my takeaway from the chart wasn't that it was a, that not, not so much that the books are of low quality because mm-hmm. I think they're very high quality. I think what I took away from it was that there's a, a, a 20,000-foot view, I think is the... Mm-hmm. I might have to use that as one of my idiomatic phrases or, okay. or proverbs, right, <laughs> in the future. There's this 20,000-foot view of dimension delirium and how they might be different. But then as we get more granular, there might be a difference between a post-surgical uh, genital urinary uh, surgery delirium related delirium and um, a a um, frontotemporal dementia and and how those two might seem differently different right and, and it again it takes me back to that key concept that I think we were hammering a few minutes ago which is a delirium is always identifiable by that DSM yeah, criteria but then the differences between that and uh, dementias then becomes more nuanced depending on the type of dementia and so forth right all right, so despite the DSM criteria being seeming to be pretty good, mm-hmm. there are a lot of tests for this. Yes, so there was several studies that are um, uh, that reviewed, um, looked at the validity and the uh, of the different tests that are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, one that was found to be an acceptable accuracy for acute older patients. Um, more than 70 years old was the 4AT, which um, that one can be conducted in uh, less than a minute. Um, there are some other ones, the CDT, which is the cognitive test for delirium. There's the DRS R98, the revised delirium rating scale, CAM, which is the confusion assessment method, not um, not the collaborative assessment for suicidality. Management of suicidality, suicidality. yeah, not CAMS, but CAM. Yeah. Um, and then there's DOS, the Delirium Observation Screening Scale. 
and among many others. Um, yes, among many others. There's, I think, even the Midas Memorial Delirium yes. Assessment Scale. Yeah. And so, from um, there was the systematic review. The ones that were found to be well validated were those that we just specified. Um, but even so, there's positives and negatives for all of these. Uh, for example, the the DRS R98. Mm -hmm. um, it provides the, the revised delirium yes, rating scale. Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Um, it 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 provides more details, but it's very time consuming. It takes 20 to 30 minutes, and it's labor intensive compared to the others. Um, the CAM is probably cons can be considered the gold standard since um, they've got different versions depending on the setting that a patient is in. There's the rapid and the long form, which even the long form is maybe 10 minutes to complete. And it does, it is scored accordingly to the DSM-5 criteria. Some of the other ones, um, there's just, it's too open for, I mean, there's a lot of different ways using those that you could go and it may take you away from the actual issue. Um, so, I mean. Would, would you, all right, so I, I wanna take a step back. I wanna tell a quick story. So there was uh, a text, I think I still have it on my shelf here, and it said you can use the Frank Jones story to diagnose delirium. And you say something along these lines. You say, I have a friend whose feet are so big he has to put his pants on over his head. And depending on how the patient responds to that, whether it's laughing or, uh, okay, fine, or that doesn't make sense, and and then they laugh and you say, okay, well, tell me why that's funny. And I, I tried that a number of times. I don't think it's helpful. I don't think the sensitivity and specificity were very good. I think that's different with these tools. But but having said all of that, the reason I liked it be, was because it was a short tool. The reason I abandoned it was because it didn't work, yeah. right? And and the data showed that. Yeah. So so the tests, the the various tests, it they can be they can be helpful, but again, it depends on this, the if the staff is has adequate training to use them or to or to assess them. Um, there is inconsistent application of the tests. There's subjectivity in the assessment itself. So, for example, if um, to assess attention, the patient has to have sufficient arousal. If the patient's too sleepy, they may be classified as inattentive, which is good for test sensitivity, but it reduces this, the specific, uh, excuse specificity. Me, specificity, <laughs> resulting in a false positive. Um, there's also the fluctuating nature of delirium, which you may go and complete one of these tests and an hour later it might be different. Um, and then just even some of the features of delirium because delirium can present itself, I mean, some of the things that they're more focused on, it, it may not, it, it doesn't have like a universal, again, in different settings, it may present differently. Slightly differently. Um, so that, so standalone, I don't, Personally, I don't think that there's sufficient, I mean, they're good tools, they may be helpful, but... Maybe just the criteria? Yeah, I just, I... One of the things I was struck by, and, and I really liked this, you, you, I think, were ready to jump on the 4AT as your test. Yeah, I, I was, and then... 
I'm not sure I'm against that, by the way. One of the things I really liked is why you liked it. You listed the reasons that the 4AT developers put Same. together as why this was a meaningful test or something that might replace other yes. tests. Do you, do you want to go through that? Because I think this is really interesting and important stuff. So, um, so there was 12 things um, why the 4AT I thought was, um, again, I don't, I don't think any of these tests is enough to make a definitive diagnosis. I still feel that it's the DSM-5 is... It's a clinical diagnosis yeah, still, it's, yeah. it's very clear. Um, but for those that are trying to assess if, you know, that something's not right, that there's something off, um, that the, a, the 4AT, it's short, it can be conducted in less than two minutes, it's easy to learn, easy to administer and to score, um, it can be used by professional level healthcare staff and um, varying um, disciplines. Um, it allows for the scoring of patients who are too drowsy, agitated, or undergo cognitive testing or clinical interview. It takes account of the informant's history. Um, you're able to administer through written questions to people with severe hearing impairment, able to be administered to patients with visual impairments, it does not require subjective judgments based on interview. It combines delirium screening with general cognitive screening. Uh, you don't need a quiet, uh, quiet environment for administration, and that there is not, it does not require any physical responses such as drawing figures or clocks. So in that aspect, um, I, I do like the 4AT, and I do think that it can be a useful tool, but I don't think that it's the end-all, be-all, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it was interesting enough to me. It gave me more insight the way they that those that list that you put together. It mm -hmm. gave me a lot of insight into some of the challenges that the, the cognitive tests have, right? Mm -hmm. We read one, um, an editorial, I think, that said even though a certain medication might be hopeful, there are a lot of problems just in assessing delirium, and he yeah. kind of went through how the the CAMS-ICU, which is one of the tests that has been um, one of the modified CAM, mm -hmm. uh, CAM, not CAMS, CAM tests, right? Um, so I think CAM is still standard of care. CAM-ICU, since delirium is probably most often addressed in an ICU setting. Um, I, I think that this 4AT is a, a great idea, and it, it teaches me about some of the, based on what you just went through, some mm -hmm. of the shortcomings of the test we have and ways to think about delirium in a way that helps me have a better sense of the bigger picture. So I really like that. So we've identified delirium. Mm -hmm. Now what do we do? Or maybe we haven't identified it. We want to prevent it. What, what do we do? Well, <laughs> You're shaking your head again. I wish I had cameras. <laughs> I don't know if people would want to see me. <laughs> oh, they would. Um, um, well, I just, well, first off, um, I just want to point out that there's no FDA approved treatment at this time for the treatment or prevention of delirium. So, um, and, you know, as we, we go into um, some of the methods that are used to try to um, treat delirium, you'll see why that it just, again, um, it, like I, um, before we began the podcast, it's clear as mud, like how to go about it. So, <laughs> very good. Uh, let's start off with um, I think the last podcast we did that tackled, I, I can't remember if it was the Draw a Clock podcast where we threw in some delirium stuff 
or if we had a standalone delirium, I don't remember. We talked about this Cochrane review at that point um, for helping to prevent uh, delirium. Now, I don't, I don't, I think this might be an update because I don't remember quote a new statistical technique used that uh, that they that they use to identify these strategies that they think might be helpful. And they had uh, a couple of things that, uh, three things that they said seemed to make a difference. You'll see these everywhere. I think you saw these in your textbooks. Yeah. This is the one thing that does seem to come through pretty clearly. Do you want to comment on those? So um, it's maintain orientation, so keeping the unit or um, familiar, so whether it's their room or, I mean, wherever the patient um, I, I thought this means maybe have family members in the room, have pictures mm -hmm. in the room. Yep. That's that's what I understand this to be. Did you understand it to be something that's, in addition to that? Or? No, that's what I that's what I understood. Uh, provide stimulation to memory and thinking. Again, the brain uh, to keep it fresh, you got to exercise it. So I was intrigued by this because I don't remember seeing this before, or it didn't stick out before. So I wondered if that meant get a Game Boy in somebody's room. Uh, whether it meant uh, get something like Nat Geo on. I, I don't know what this means exactly. So f for anything that, the way that I, I took it is that anything that keeps your mind um, active. Yeah, or... Um, Occupied in something besides the, yes. maybe the delirium kinds mm -hmm. of things. So, so I know that we, um, Hewlings Jackson, we talked about that as one of the people that said schizophrenia, it, it's the negative symptoms, and if you fill it up with the hallucinations, that comes later, right? In, in a sense, I think we're saying the same thing here. Um, delirium is this negative space, and it can be filled up with confusion, or if you keep your mind active, maybe it doesn't have to be filled up with mm -hmm. confusion. Maybe that's the idea? Yeah, that's... That might be what they were referring to. In any case, they seem to think it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the other one was find a way to improve sleep through better sleep hygiene, which um, sleep affects all areas of our health. It might be one of those vulnerability things. Mm -hmm. I was intrigued by this because we're, we're and we're going to talk about this a little bit more. Uh, a lot of medications focused on sleep mm -hmm. don't seem to improve sleep. No. <laughs> so this is very clear in, in this Cochrane review from 2021. Mm -hmm. It's sleep hygiene, mm -hmm. not just hammer somebody into sleep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we're trying to prevent this. The way I read the article, you might reduce length of stay by one day using these techniques. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is the home run we want it to be. No. It's helpful, though. It is helpful. But again, I agree with you. I don't think it's the how I say it, the end-all be-all. So. The end-all be-all, the home run. Um, what was also interesting is they didn't feel that they could show any change in mortality using this strategy, which I thought was quite fascinating. Yeah. Or so, dementia. So, again, that for me, that would be my ultimate goal is I, I mean, death is an adverse reaction. Uh, Advert outcome. Yeah. Advert's outcome. Um, and so even though these these are helpful with possibly, you know, hospital stay, um, I mean, we want to try to reverse the 
the damage that delirium is causing. So the mortality is, for me, that... that That's the big deal. Yeah. I think that speaks to the second subpoint we have here. We have uh, what five or six different things, and, mm-hmm. and I don't want this to be viewed by whoever might be listening to this as a comprehensive list of treatments. This no. is a number of treatments we found. The, yeah. the one that you will see the most on on testing is how do you respond to the environment, and it is the time, it's the stimulation memory, and it's mm-hmm. the sleep hygiene, right? Those, those yeah. are going to be things you do need to know. Right. Um, but But I think that often comes at the expense of pointing out treat the underlying condition identify that as quickly as you You, can you have to get to the root cause not um don't be just focusing on the branches and the leaves when it's when it's not that's not what the issue is one of the articles we looked at i think one of the series of admitted patients i don't think it was the george article and i don't think it was the later mangy article magni magni Um, it, I think it was a completely different article. What they what they said was the initial cause of delirium didn't end up being the cause that they think was the ultimate cause. Mm-hmm. So I, I think one of the one of the factors here is your first uh, your first guess at what's causing the delirium might not be the full story, especially when you're thinking about a multifactorial cause mm-hmm. in, a, in a vulnerable mind. Right. Um, let's talk about a couple of medications. Okay. Which ones do you want? Well, <laughs> all of them. All of them. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about uh, the orexin antagonists. Okay. Um, Unless you want to talk about something else, we have enough to talk about here. Well, why don't you talk about that one, and then I'll talk about um, Haldol, the use of Haldol in treating delirium. All right. So the orexin antagonists are kind of interesting molecules. The first time I saw these, I was in re- uh, residency. And there was some question about whether the what, what was then called the SPNK1 pathway. Um, I don't remember what, uh, I think it was substance P is SP and NK. I don't remember where that came from. So this SPNK1 pathway was hopefully uh, going to lead to development of some molecules that would treat anxiety. Well, it turns out that they probably make anxiety worse, if I remember the data. Mm-hmm. But they did end up finding a home in treatment of insomnia. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was a study done by Xu, XU, mm-hmm. and his group in 2020 looking at suvorexant, which is an orexin A and orexin B receptor antagonist, uh, again approved for treatment of insomnia in at least the United States and Japan. Um, the question was, if sleep hygiene is important, can we um, help people sleep using suvorexant and get a reduced delirium, you know, an improvement in the delirium mm-hmm. outcomes? So they, uh, there was a meta-analysis done by, by XU, I'm calling that SHU, and I'm doing my best, I know how. Um, 402 subjects they identified in what they felt like were reasonably well-designed. Uh, trials, 457 controls, and um, they felt like there was a delay to delirium and perhaps a reduction in incident, uh, incident delirium. In other words, uh, if you already had delirium, uh, using this prophylactically, maybe it didn't happen as quickly and maybe it didn't happen. they didn't have numbers that gave me the ability to build an NNT, right? How many would you have to treat? How many people would you have to treat to reduce uh, the, the uh, how many patients would you have to uh, 
uh, treat with delirium to have one patient that didn't have a delirium. Mm-hmm. Most of the other studies I was able to find that and, and do an NNT. They just gave data that said, hey, maybe it would, it, it would reduce that. Interestingly enough, I think they also said that it didn't change sleep patterns giving people orexin. Mm-hmm. Um, but they hypothesized that this orexin pathway that superorexin uh, affects might have a number of upstream uh, inflammatory outcomes, and so maybe they block inflammation. That gets back to one of the theories. Um, at the end of the day, I think both you and I were left with the uh, feeling that there would need to be more studies on this, and that maybe um, they would need to look at specific subsets of patients with specific mm-hmm. types of delirium. Yeah. And, and again, types of delirium, causes of delirium, that, that, and we'll get into that more later, I think. Uh, let's see. The next one was dexmedetomidine. Dexmedetomidine. And I hope that has a better trade name. Um, looks promising. There was uh, a Lancet article with 700 patients, randomized controlled. Uh, Xian Su and colleagues using this prophylactically again uh, felt like there was a 13% reduction in post-op delirium, very specific setting. So the way I do my uh, NNTs, if I remember right, 15 is about 6, so 13 is probably an NNT of 7. So for every 7 patients that you give this medication to, you might have one patient that improves or doesn't have a delirium. Uh, Haldol has a lot of data. Are you ready to tackle Haldol? Well, um, so there's, well, again, there's lots of data. Conflicting data, too, yeah. Studies. Um, So in a a study by Vander Bogard in 2013, um, they found that the prevention of delirium with Haldol may work in the, or they proposed that it may work in the highest risk patients, um, though sepsis may be different. In the trial, there was 177 patients, um, and then the, the historical comparison arm, there was a seven-day reduction in the duration of delirium and a 10% less chance to develop it. Um, so let me just make sure I understand this then. Yeah. They didn't have like a randomized control trial where somebody went into one arm or the other. If I remember correctly, they had um, they had this uh, like ten factor algorithm mm-hmm. where they tried to predict who might have delirium, um, and then they they then gave people Haldol prophylactically mm-hmm. if they felt like they would have delirium, and then they went back to a historical compar- comparison arm. Mm-hmm. And did the same thing retrospectively, yeah. predicting who might have delirium. It was kind of an odd study. I thought it was reasonably done the way they were trying to do it if they felt that Haldol truly did help uh, prevent delirium. And so in comparison to the historical arm, mm-hmm. they had a seven-day reduction in the duration of delirium when used prophylactically mm-hmm. and a 10% chance less. Yes. Um, so so what I don't know is if all comers had a seven-day reduction, if that was across the board, but it looks like for prevention of delirium, you'd have to treat 10 patients to get with Haldol prophylactically mm-hmm. to prevent one delirium. So, but from the, from the study as well, um, even though it did show a modest reduction in ICU readmission and line removal, 
there was a 10% discontinuation due to the QTC changes and a few more were removed because of, um, of for Parkinson Parkinson-like symptoms. Yeah, when I read this, I didn't see that that was TD emergence, but mm -hmm. it could have been. So, um, well, I do wonder if Parkinson would be a less in, uh, meaningful, but like if, if you kept people treated through Parkinsonism, mm -hmm. I think it was only two or three patients out of the 177. I kind of wonder if that would be an okay thing to tolerate considering you might prevent uh, dementia. Right. With that, right? But, but I don't. I, we don't have data for that. It's something no. that crosses my mind. I did. I did think that uh, this article left me with a couple of questions. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure if uh, this was an intention to treat analysis. In other, in other words, did the QTC people that were pulled out of the out of the treatment arm did they continue to count those towards? as if they were treated like an intention to treat analysis. And and if not, you know, that that would give us some, some clear answers. And, and maybe I just missed it. I think I looked for it, but I didn't find it. No, well, I didn't. I, that wasn't clear either. So I I don't think it was just you. Yeah, the, the one number that's really big to me, though, is that 20% uh, reduction in mortality, which means that for every five patients that you're assessing as high risk, mm -hmm. right? And and the way they had the 10-factor risk assessment, plus if you had alcohol or dementia already, we're giving this to you, right? right. Um, they had a 20% reduction in mortality, and I thought that was pretty remarkable. Mm -hmm. And why that, I, I don't, I, I can't help but wonder, is this reduction in mortality because the team is super focused on reversing the causes of delirium. We know there's a delirium, we're watching for it, so if there's a delirium, what medical thing is... Yeah, I can't, I can't help but wonder, I mean, 20% yeah. means five people. For every five people that were high risk, that were given Haldol, one did not die. That's a big number. And I think their comparison group, even though it was kind of an odd study, the way they made the comparison group, I thought it was pretty reasonable um, the way they built a comparison group and, and at least data that says maybe there's more to this story. Because I think there's also some other data out there that says antipsychotics kill people. Yep. So, well, uh, there is another study that was conducted, but it was on... So with this, I don't remember with that study what the dosage was, if they used a high dosage, if it was a low dosage, I, I don't remember exactly. But there is another study that used low dose um, Helperidol and it, it didn't show an increase in adverse effects associated with the antipsychotic, but it did show some beneficial effects with decreasing the severity and duration of delirium postoperative. So it didn't stop the delirium from happening, but it did decrease the severity and the length of it. And this was flat out um, post-op study, right? Correct. As opposed to people walking into the hospital who right. are at high risk. Right. And again, I think these I think these differences are important because I, I'm trying to remember, is this the study that had, yeah, so this, this is the one that said, the, let's see, the Vander Bogard study I thought mm -hmm. was really fascinating because they said, hey, if you use this for everything but sepsis, you have really great outcomes. Mm -hmm. But that, that's interesting because we do see some hypotension in sepsis already, mm -hmm. and we see hypotension as an additive effect with uh, Haldol. So you might be worsening 
one of the things. Now, Inouye says, hey, you're just making people more sedated with, with uh, antipsychotics. And I think there's actually, I'm not sure if there are articles on Haldol that show increased mortality, but, but there are certainly articles out there that say this or that antipsychotic increases mortality, and I think Seroquel might have been one of those, mm-hmm. uh, also known as quetiapine, right? Haldol, also known as haloperidol. We're not. Yes, the yeah, same we, thing. Um, those are the generic names. We should probably mention those. Um, so, so I think there's some nuances in this that, as maybe we understand the situation more, perhaps if we avoid use of Haldol in sepsis, um, I wouldn't be surprised if we find a better outcome, and then we might start finding that there are different medical conditions where Haldol has a more protective effect than in other settings. So, so I thought that was an interesting study. Um, Melatonin. So there was a study conducted, um, again, with the the factor of sleep, if melatonin um, would, um, to see if it would affect the occurrence or the duration severity of delirium. Um, So in a study in 2018 by, I'm hoping, Jaswell, um, it and instead melatonin seemed to increase delirium. <laughs> Number needed to harm was seven. The way I calculated that, yeah. for every seven people you gave and melatonin, it, you harmed one person. Yeah, and it didn't affect the sleep either. So it just was interesting. Um, again, with the different medications that providers are using to try to treat, like the the incon. We might be harming people. Yeah. So Haldol might help many people. Mm-hmm. Quetiapine may not. Right. But maybe it's condition specific. It gets mm-hmm. back to that medical result, the medical underlying medical. And then the melatonin too. It seems to hurt people, not. At least in this study. At least in that study. But interestingly enough, they said, "Hey, but maybe our data is wrong because there are a lot of studies out there that say melatonin helps." Yeah. So again, conflicting information. Conflicting information. <laughs> Um, I think we've uh, we've talked about uh, long-term outcomes, but I'd like you to just kind of add one more comment on this with the awareness that this is a lot bigger topic in itself. Um, in term- so the long-term outcomes oh. in terms of like uh, dementia. So um, yeah, I, you have a couple of notes here that I'd like so you to comment on. In a meta-analysis um, from 2020, um, again, this is one of the reasons why it's so important for us to be able to recognize um, delirium and to treat um, treat it's the, the, the cause of it. Um, delirium has significantly associated with long-term cognitive decline in both surgical and non-surgical patients. Um, in addition, um, it's been identified that um, poor functional and survival outcomes um, that, excuse me, that individuals following an episode of delirium have poor functional and survival outcomes. So, again, it addresses back to the mortality issue. Um, it was also found that hypoactive delirium was even had an even poorer uh, prognosis than the hyperactive or the mixed. Interesting. Now I totally skipped a, a line there because I was planning how we went ahead. No wonder you were looking at me weird. Okay. Um, I want to pick that up though here as we go through our additional comments. Okay. So usually 
um, I, I say last thoughts, and it's very, very kind of free-flowing, right? Mm-hmm. But I think we wrote down a lot of our kind of the things that surprised us with this podcast prep, mm-hmm. right? Um, I'll start with one of the things that surprised me most. We, we looked at a lot of review articles. Yes. <laughs> a lot of review articles. Um, I think we had... And I, I probably only read 20 or 30 of the articles we pulled together. We probably had 100 articles. I skimmed maybe a half a dozen more, a dozen more. I, I think you read more than I did. Yeah. <laughs> there, there were a lot of articles. So I think one of the things that surprised me in those review articles was that many of those started with more than 2,000 articles that they mm-hmm. sifted through. And by the time that they said, here's the data that's worth commenting on, worth summarizing in a meta-analysis or a review article, quite often there were fewer than 10 articles left. I was shocked by that. I think it speaks to the idea that there are still a lot of challenges in understanding delirium, understanding how we recognize it, how we treat it, how we prophylactically address it. There's a lot that we're still trying to understand with this. So that brings me back to, um, I guess, the overall takeaway. Much of delirium itself doesn't seem that it's preventable. And so, um, and perhaps in some cases it's inevitable, you know, for example, the frailty end of life. So there is another perspective that maybe it it would make more sense to just focus on the interventions in frailty or vulnerability rather than the delirium-specific interventions alone. And that was kind of tying into what you said before, like each delirium, are we going to find a specific treatment for each one um, or just look at, I guess, more of the issues, again, the vulnerabilities, and try to address them and try to manage and prevent those instead of, the, the delirium itself. The last up. Yeah. I really liked that point. And, and again, I, I, can't re, I, I can't get over how many, how differently I view delirium now compared to even after the last podcast. It, it seems to be a lot more like ingrained in my mind that the pathway to delirium matters. Mm-hmm. How people present with the delirium probably matters. There are differences between hypoactive and agitated delirium. There's maybe a difference in our pathway through the frailty deliriums versus the post, post-operative genitourinary mm-hmm. or cardiothoracic deliriums, that each one of those is different. I, 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 can't, um, I, I can't reiterate enough mm-hmm. how much I was impressed by that as well. So, and for my takeaway in addition to that is, I guess before I started this, um, with, I guess I was a bit, um, it didn't seem as clear what, like, to be able to, to distinguish or diagnose, but after going through, the delirium is very easy to, I, I, well. That's the easy part, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's the easy part. It's, <laughs> it's working your way back to find out, okay, well, what has caused the delirium? Because mm-hmm. the delirium is not the, the originating, it's not the root. So we need to work our way back and then focus on that. And then the same with, um, again, just maybe it can't be prevented and maybe it is inevitable, but maybe if we look and try to, maybe we need to change our perspective a little and focus more on the vulnerabilities or frailty 
and work on that. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. One of the other takeaways I had um, was that hearing and sight Mm -hmm. are a big deal, right? Mm -hmm. I've heard these things before, right? Orientation is important and and, and usually the way I've been taught this is, you know, if somebody can't hear or see, they can't orient. Mm-hmm. Well, it might be different than that. Maybe orientation is not the critical aspect of this, right? When we look at the data, mm-hmm. having a room that is familiar doesn't mm-hmm. seem to have as big an outcome as maybe some of the other interventions. Having said that, there is something about hearing and sight that matters a lot. And that was really fascinating in some of the data that we combed through. It wasn't something that I saw like standalone articles on, but that thread popped up a lot of times. Well, our senses. How, I mean... How do you keep your mind active, right? How do you, maybe that gets back to the idea of, you know, an active mind filling that space with things that are meaningful. What else? Any other takeaways that you had? No, I... Well, slightly separate, but I do feel that um, I feel more calm with this podcast than the first one. What was the difference? Um, I guess because this is the second time around, I have, I guess it, um, maybe the first one was the unknown. Like I wasn't sure how, I mean, my very first podcast, I wasn't sure how it would go. This one I feel more at ease and um, I don't know more comfortable with the skips I accidentally yeah. do yeah the I, jumping I, happens it's okay <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm, so, I'm I'm moving with the flow a bit bit better I want to think I, I, I do think that there might be uh, an applicable take home right one of the things that they teach us in in our therapeutic training and like our individual therapy is what's happening in the room is more important than anything outside the room, right? Mm-hmm. And I noticed that you're a lot less sleepy today than you are when, when, when than you were last time. And that might be one of those vulnerabilities that we talk about with delirium. You didn't have a delirium yeah. last time, obviously, right? <laughs> no. But I think it does speak, those sleep disruptions, the other disruptions to cognition, it does speak to the ability in the moment to do anything. And if you have those vulnerabilities, then you add and tip that over, right? I I think that's just a a further take home on this idea of multifactorial delirium. um, Sleep is very important. Sleep is important. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Other takeaways. I, I really like that takeaway too, by the way. It's one of the reasons why I like to have students have a podcast with somebody else first, right? Here, do do one with so-and-so, and then I think the second podcast always goes easier for people because they see kind of how it flows, right? Other take-homes? Oh, just that it is um, very complex The to be able to, it, it is an art form to be able to identify the, the causes of delirium and to be able to sift through the information that you have to try to find the information that you need so that you can address or approach the issue correctly or effectively. So it just, reading all of this, I was, it, it can manifest in 
The manifestation is broad, yes, but it still comes down to a couple of things, doesn't it? Yeah. You can still identify it, which yeah. I think is great. Um, again, just if you can identify delirium, you will know you have delirium. You can't rule out that there's also a dementia, right. but you will not misdiagnose dementia with delirium if you focus on the attention mm -hmm. plus one other cognitive change and the temporal nature of the illness, which is the onset and the fluctuation, right? Mm -hmm. As long as you got those, you got it nailed. Mm -hmm. All right, so we we can answer your professor's question in like eight seconds. Right. How long do you think the podcast is without looking? I'm thinking an hour. And 25 minutes. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I think you have to be somewhere else in moments, so we better yes. stop here. Um, thank you so much for a wonderful topic. I really enjoyed this. And maybe a heads up to a future topic. Um, I'm not sure that uh, Layla will be involved in this one, but uh, if she is, it would be a lot of fun. We had a request from somebody that listens to the podcast to do a podcast on the overlap between what often uh, obsessiveness mm -hmm. and uh, following command hallucinations uh, and uh, psychosis and, and maybe the space where either the illnesses have uh, similar appearing symptoms or what might cause them to run together. We'll see where the data takes us. So kind of a tease for the future. And on that note, Layla, uh, team out. Thank you. Team out. <laughs>